All right, well, we're back in 2 Peter. So if you remember where that is in your Bible, turn there, because we're going to be in chapter 3 for the next couple of weeks together. Uh, we're going to finish this incredible letter that, that we started uh, some time ago. And uh, chapter 3 is where, where we're going to start, is where we're going to finish. And uh, we're going to do this over the next two to three weeks together. And I'm excited to uh, wind down this incredible book. It has been so, so good uh, to go through this together with you guys. We're going to look at verses uh, uh, 1 all the way down to verse uh, 13 uh, this morning, although we'll have some crossover next week where we pick it up. Uh, but let me just read 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and then I'll pray for us as we, we, we turn our hearts to Scripture, and then we'll walk through this section together. This is what it says. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and, and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the, from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water and by the word of God, and that by means of these the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word, the heavens and the earth that, are, that, are, that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of, hol in, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hasting for the day of, of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your help as we unpack these truths this morning. We, we can't possibly understand this apart from your spirit. So Lord, we ask that you would be our great teacher as we learn new truths, reminded of old ones, and all of them, Lord, embed them deep into our hearts for transformation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter is coming down to the last writings that he would ever write. We saw this in 1 Peter. Now we see it in 2 Peter. Uh, he is coming down to the end. And the topic that he takes on in chapter 3 is the day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, it's called the day of the Lord. In verse 12, it is called the day of God. And what is happening here in chapter 3 is that the false teachers have come in and started to question whether or not Jesus Christ is actually going to return. 
As followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he is going to do three things. He is going to save his people from the evil that is in this world. He's going to judge all sin and evil in this world. And he's going to establish his earthly kingdom right here. Now, Hollywood likes to take their swing at the end times. Some of you have seen movies or have heard of movies or have seen the trailer to movies that predict what the end times would look like. And most of it is portrayed by some sort of alien coming down and destroying the earth or portrayed maybe as uh, robots that are going to take over the earth. Now, uh, with AI, I mean, that might actually happen where they actually take over the earth. Some apocalyptic genre where Hollywood says, this is how the end is going to be. They want to take a shot at it. But the Bible has the truth about the end times. The Bible teaches us that Jesus comes back raptures his church, takes them home to glory, and then establishes his earthly kingdom. When Jesus comes back, he is not coming back this time to bring peace, but to bring the sword. When Jesus returns, it is for judgment, it is for destruction. And Peter deals with this very topic here in chapter 3. The arrival of Jesus Christ is certain. Verse 10 says, but the day of the Lord will come. Question it all you want. Jesus is going to return. No matter what Hollywood says about the end times, no matter what the agnostic, the humanist, the atheist, or any other false man-centered religion says, Jesus Christ is going to return. This is all over scripture. James 5, 7, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you, may also be also, you will be also. Matthew 24, 30 and 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming down on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We read this every single time we take communion in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. 26. Every single time, this is what it says. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, what? Until he comes. Jesus is coming. Now for the believer, this is one of the great comforts in all the Bible. It really is. On those bad days, on those horrible days, on those days of suffering and persecution, you look to the heavens, you go, Jesus, is it today? Could it please be today? I'm just ready to meet my Savior. One of the great comforts in all the Bible is the second coming of Christ for the believer, but for the unbeliever, the second coming of Christ is a great concern. It's not comforting. It's concerning. It's concerning because if you're not in Jesus Christ when he returns, then you will be counted as one who will be judged in an eternal separation from God. And so Peter rightly 
and thankfully. And if it was your last letter to pen to your closest friends, to pen to those you love the most, would you not want to mention the second coming of Jesus Christ? And in that, ask them this, uh, this question, are you ready for Jesus to return? This is really the concern of Peter. This chapter has been scrutinized over and over and over again. As you get down into the trees and maybe even looking at the bark of the trees. But if you pull back and just take a look over all of chapter 3, the heart of this writer is this. Are you ready for Jesus to return? This is Peter's heart and really this is my heart. This is the heart of any pastor who loves his flock. The heart of any elder who loves his people is this, making sure that you're ready for when Jesus returns. What good is it to live a life of great morality if you're not ready for Jesus to return? What, what good is it to live a life of great philanthropy if you're not ready for Jesus to return? What good is it to live a life where you accumulate all sorts of things here on earth if you're not ready for Jesus to return? This is at the heart of every single pastor Because this deals with eternity. And it's the heart of Peter. So he gives us then in in this chapter three ways to ready yourself for Jesus' return. Here's the first one. Place your mind in Scripture until Jesus returns. Look at what it says in verse one. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. He writes this term of endearment, this this word beloved. I'm writing this to you. Why is it writing it to you? Look what it says. Uh, In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He had already done this in chapter one, verses 12 to to, uh, 15, where he wants to remind them of the gospel and remind them and remind them and remind them. And he does it again. I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, uh, verse two, that you should remember what, is, what, does he want to, what does he want to do? He wants to wake you up to a reality. He wants to stir up your mind to what, what is going to happen. He doesn't want you to fall asleep, but rather stimulate the readers into thinking about the coming of Jesus Christ. He doesn't want the believer to become, become idle about this. He doesn't want to become susceptible or lazy to false doctrine that is clearly infiltrating the church because all of chapter 2 is about false prophets and false teachers. These false prophets and these false teachers are are teaching things contrary to to the Word of God. And these false teachers, they're, they're witty and they're clever. And we, we went and we took weeks and weeks to, to dive in to see what a false teacher does and even how a false teacher uh, would preach their truth. They would spread all different sorts of doctrine, all different sorts of teaching. teaching. And Peter is concerned that even though they don't follow these false teachers, they would hear about it and become lazy in their understanding and thinking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so he says, I I need to, uh, as it were, grab you by the collar and shake you a little bit and remind you that Jesus is coming. 
The old football coaches would, would grab the mask of the player. They wouldn't dare do it now. They'd get fired. But they would grab the mask of a football player. They'd pull it in tight, and they'd look them dead in the eye and tell them exactly what they wanted to do. That's the mindset here. Peter is grabbing you and saying, look, Jesus is going to return. Are you ready? I need to stir up your mind. And what do I want you to do? I want you to think back. I want you to go back and remember what the holy prophets commanded you. I need you to go back and search what what has been said in Scripture. I need you to think about what was said through, as it says there at the end of verse 2, about what the apostles are teaching. I, I, I need your mind in Scripture, not on the false teachers, not on the culture, not on the things that are being taught you. I need your mind in the Word of God. Don't wander off on rabbit's trails. Don't go off thinking about all these other prophecies and and ideas and and how the end times are going to happen and then convince yourself that nothing's going to happen at all. I remember when, just three years ago, we all remember when uh, we found out that we were going to be shut into our homes and COVID and all that kind of stuff was happening. And during that time, if you wanted, you could start a YouTube channel and start just predicting how the world's going to end and everybody would watch you. I mean, somehow you got uh, credibility by having a YouTube channel predicting the end times. Because everybody's like, it's the end times, it's the end times. Something's going to happen, and, and all these things are coming up, and you need, to, you need to store up for three years all this food and water, which, if that's you, let me know your address, because I, I know where to go. But that, that's just the mindset. I even got a text message of somebody who said to me, should I tape up my windows with plastic? I mean, I'm dead serious. I was like, what is happening right now? Who did you watch on YouTube? Somebody who does not know Scripture, obviously. But that's what he said. That's the mindset is you just start racing everywhere then to Scripture to find the answer. In this case, what was happening here is these false teachers were saying this. He's not going to come back. Look at verse 4. Where's the promise of his coming? Where's this promise you speak of? Jesus is going to come back. Who's saying this anyway? It's not going to happen. What were they doing? It says in verse 3, they're, they're, they're saying, uh, they were scoffing. It says, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They're, they're following after their own sinful desires, and they're, they're just scoffing uh, as mockers. And, and this, word, this word literally means to laugh at somebody. They're the subject of bitter ridicule. So this is what they're saying. They're saying, Christ isn't going to come back. Are you kidding me? Like, he hasn't come back. He's not going to come back. Where, where do you even get this information from? Where, where, do you, where, do you, where, where do you even get that? They ask this question. They're going to say it. Where, where's this promise of his coming? And then they even, they even go back and say, forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. Look, it's just the same thing after generation after generation over and over and over again. We've seen this all the way from the beginning and all the way through now. Jesus is not going to return. That's their argument. Verse 5. For they did deliberately what overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water 
by the word of God, and that by means of the, of the world, that then existed and deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These false teachers are deliberately overlooking the fact that God once judged the world before, and he judged the world with water and the flood, and he has predicted and said and promised that he will do the same by the same word, except next time not with water, but with fire. They overlook creation. They overlook what God has done in the past. And next time, when he comes back, he will judge the world, this time with fire. And if you read verse 7, as we read verse 7 together, and I'll read it here in a second, if that does not bring to your mind and to your heart all those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, then you need to go back and understand the reality of what Peter is saying, that By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction on the ungodly. When Christ returns, it's not going to be pretty. But there's a day of judgment and destruction that is coming. It should make our hearts burn for the lost. It should make our hearts thankful for what we have in Christ. That the end times is not a concern to us. But it should be a concern for those who don't know Christ and the role that you have in that. Oftentimes, you can walk into churches year after year after year and never hear a message on the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ. You don't hear about sin and the ultimate destruction of what that means for somebody who dies apart from Jesus Christ. And Peter hits it head on and he says, there's going to be a day of destruction for anybody who is not in Jesus Christ. And if that doesn't bring some measure of emotion and concern for the lost, then you need to evaluate for yourself If not only are you saved, but the depths of your understanding of salvation. You're not part of the judgment of Jesus Christ when he comes back. In John 12, 46 to 48, he says, I've come into the world as light. So whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. For for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. 
Church, I get it. We get so comfortable in our lives and we get so comfortable in our pursuits and we get so comfortable uh, living for this world and wanting comfort in this world that it's easy to forget Christ is going to return and those who are not in Jesus Christ are not going to be in heaven with him forever. And this literally is that Peter is literally shaking you right now. He is arresting your attention And he is reminding you of the reality of heaven and hell. He is reminding you of the reality that people need to be ready for when Christ returns. You say, how? How do I stay that way? You stay that way by getting your mind in Scripture and outside of the world. That's how you stay there. We have to tie ourselves to Scripture, anchor ourselves to Scripture, Get our minds in the word of God and radically remain there until Jesus returns. Number two is this. Prepare your soul for Jesus' return. Prepare your own soul for Jesus' return. He just says the judgment and destruction will come on the ungodly, but verse 8 comes, thankfully. We love verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. There it is, that word again, beloved, this term of endearment and of love and concern. Do not overlook this fact that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should repentance. The Lord is not slow in this promise that these false teachers are questioning. Is he going to come back? What is this promise you speak of? He hasn't come back yet. Are you sure he's going to come back? And, and Peter says, well, let me just tell you this, that a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, and the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's saying this, that the Lord works on his own timetable, and it's not our timetable. The Lord works on his own clock, not on our clock. And he's not slow as some would count slowness to be, but he is patient towards you. Now, I don't think this is a a great place to argue a a day-age theory of Genesis chapter 1, as this is clearly, uh, he uses words like like and as and like and as. It's like one, it's not as one. He's not saying that one day to us is a thousand years to the Lord. He's saying that there is great patience here that the Lord has as he doesn't want to see anybody judged in their sin. God has a long fuse. In fact, this word for patient here, it means just that. He's, he's slow to anger. He's slow to, pay, to punish. He, he, he has this, this long fuse about him. He, he is patient it's as if each day was a thousand years to the Lord. He is, he's that patient with us. We, on the other hand, can get quite impatient. Especially in traffic. I knew that would get you. I mean, traffic comes and you're like, ah, don't these cars know I've got places to be? Why are there so many cars on the road? Where can they possibly be going right now? This morning, I even said that. I was all, where are these cars? And I looked over at Drew, and I go, they're not going to church. I'll tell you that much, you know. 
<laughs> I don't know where they're going. The lunch line at Chipotle, you get impatient. You texted somebody, and you're like, why haven't they texted me back? I texted them. I, I demand a five-minute response, an email, right? I mean, just the list just goes on and on and on of the ways that we can become so impatient, but, but yet we're told here of the patience of God. He doesn't get impatient. He has a long fuse by which he is waiting for all whom he has called to come into Christ. That all, as it says there in verse 9, that all should reach what? Repentance. This is the issue, church. Those who have repented in Jesus Christ and accepted him as Savior and Lord will not be judged, and those who have not repented will be judged. This is the crux of it all. He is patient so that people would repent. Peter tells him the Lord is going to keep his promise. The Lord is going to come back, and what may seem like a long time to us is not a long time to God. Some other verses here that speak of this uh, desire of God in Psalm 90 and verse 4. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Ezekiel 18 and verse 32. And if you want to kind of bracket your understanding around verse 9, it is this, is that he's speaking here of the desire of God, not the decree of God, but the desire of God. This is the desire of God. He desires that all would come to repentance, but he has decreed that only those whom he has chosen and elected would be saved. Two different wills of God. The decreed will and the desirous will of God. And this verse speaks to the desire of God. In a similar way, it is the desire of God that nobody would commit murder, but yet it was the decree of God that God would kill his own son. They do not rub up against one another, but in the perfect complexity of salvation, God desires that all would be saved, yet decrees that only his elect would be saved. And when he does that, he's protecting his own glory He's protecting who he is over the priority of the will of man. And so what 2 Peter 3, 9 help us, helps us with in here is the desirous will of God. And what's the desire? That men would repent. Literally, it means this, a complete change of the heart, of the attitude, of the interests, of their direction. They were once running from God. They are now turning and running to God. There is an entire 180 uh, turn to God. Why is this needed? Because it tells us right there in, the ver in verse 10, this is why it's so needed, because the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord is one day with, with multiple days to follow, multiple events to follow. One day he comes and then it un unleashes a series of, of more and more and more destruction and judgment. But listen, church, 
This is what I started with, and this is what you need to, to figure out. No matter what your theology is, the point is this. Are you ready? Are you ready for when Jesus returns? Wrestle, yes, with what that verse is. Wrestle, yes, and, and come to a, a right theological understanding of what verse 9 means. But at the end of the day, just pull back and ask yourself the question, am I even ready for the day of the Lord? Have you repented of your sins? Have you made things right with God? You say, well, I'm just going to wait till I get older. I'll deal with it when, I, when I'm older. i got a great life right now. Maybe if I get sick, things aren't going so well. It's at that moment that I'll, that I'll deal with my sin. I'll deal with my, my standing before God. What does it say? Verse 10. But the Lord's going to come what? Like a thief. When do thieves come? Not announced. The thief doesn't say, hey, tonight I'm going to come rob your house. Tonight I'm going to come steal your car. Thieves don't announce when they're coming. When is the Lord going to come? Unannounced. Like a thief in the night. You know, not one New Testament writer even takes a guess as to when Jesus is going to return. Not one of them even makes a guess at all. But yet all the world seems to think that they've got the power and the knowledge to guess when Jesus can return. Hey, the New Testament writers weren't smart enough, but I'm smart enough. I've got this Bible code I've been working through for the last 30 years. And if you subtract 2,000 from all the verses of the Bible, add 300... No, it's there. You laugh, but people are making millions of dollars after this ridiculous prediction, and not one New Testament writer even takes a swing at it. All Peter could say is this. He's coming like a thief in the night. Are you ready for when he comes? He's going to come when you least expect it. I want you to see this with me in Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24, concerning the end times. This is so interesting. Verse 36. says this, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Can we we just be okay with that, church? Can we just be okay with that? That no one knows. Let's just be okay with that. And let's just be ready for when he returns. Let's keep going. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the concerning the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The two men will be in the field and one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. 
that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have, would have left his house, let his house be broken into. Verse 34, all eyes on verse 34. Therefore, you also, what? Must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Church, do you live in light of that? This is what matters most. Not knowing the day is not about knowing the hour. It's not about guessing or looking up videos about when we think he's coming. What matters is if you're ready or not. And the Lord is patient before he comes to judge. Leads to number three. Purify your heart until Jesus returns. The end of verse 10, it says, The Lord is going to come like a thief in the night, and what's going to happen? The heavens will pass away with a roar. Heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment. But now verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Here it is. What are we to do then? Okay, we're ready. Now what? What sort of people are we to be? What it says. Lives of holiness and godliness, waiting and hastening the coming of the day of God. So what are we to do? How are we to live our lives? We know this, that the, the day is coming when all will be dissolved. He's saying that the world is temporary. Everything is going to be dissolved. In fact, he goes on and he says it again. It's kind of, this verse is kind of sandwiched right in between uh, the end of verse uh, uh, 12 where it says the heavens will be set on fire. They will be dissolved. Heavenly bodies will, will melt as they burn. And right sandwiched in there is this call to us to what? To purify our lives. To live lives of holiness. To live lives waiting and hastening for the day of the Lord. To have, as it were, a passionate pursuit of heavenly things rather than a passionate pursuit of worldly things. Why? Because the worldly things are what? They're going to dissolve. The worldly things are going to burn up. The worldly things aren't going to be here. If you, if you want a, a verse on global warming, there's your verse on global warming. It's all going to end. It's going to dissolve. And what happens is when we have our, our, our eschatology down, when we have our understanding down of the end times, what happens then is, is as we're grounded in that, then that motivates us towards holy living. And we live godly lives. Why is godly lives so important? Because our godly lives, our lives of holiness, I've been saying this for years, our lives of holiness are the most attractive thing to the gospel your friends and family will ever see. And if you're not living a life of holiness, why would they ever want to be a part of Christianity? 
The most effective tool you have in your tool belt is your own personal pursuit of holiness. And so he goes back to this very thing. In the midst of talking about the end times, in the midst of talking about Jesus Christ's return, he says, hey, Christian, you need to pursue holiness so that people look at your life and they see the good news of the gospel and they're attracted to Christ through your life of holiness. What Titus said in Titus 2.10, he said this very same thing about holiness, about attraction to the gospel. It is through holiness. It is through godliness. C.H. Spurgeon says this, let a man become really holy and even if he only has the slightest ability, he will be a more fit instrument in God's hand than a man of great acquired skills who is not obedient to the divine will, nor clean and pure in the sight of the Lord God Almighty. God uses those who are pursuing holiness and righteousness more than the man who is super skilled and living a life of sin. Doesn't that encourage you, church? Some of you are like, I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to talk to my friend. I don't even know how to strike up the conversation. Passionately pursue holiness in your life. Passionately pursue Christ in your life. Rid yourself of sin, and people will start asking you. What? You're not scared about what's going on right now? You're not living in anxiety right now? What's going on? What's happening? I sat down at lunch a couple weeks ago with a, with a couple people, and we sat there, and they, they looked at me, and they go, what's your secret? I mean, literally, they want to know the secret to how we had so many people in our church. They're like, you're in Bellevue. How do, I, how, many, how, how do so many people come to your church? I go, I tell them this. Live a life of holiness, and people will come to our church. And we teach the Bible. And we hold people accountable to the Bible and we open it up and we say, this is what the Bible says, pursue holiness and people will show up. There's no secret sauce. It's simply obedience to the word of God. And he says this here, Peter goes back to it again. Well, what sort of people ought you to be? Holiness, righteousness, waiting on God, hastening for the day. Micah said this in Micah 7, 7. He says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. The great hymn, Blessed Assurance. A lady by the name of Fanny Crosby. Ironically, she was physically blind. She wrote this verse perfect submission all is at rest i and my savior am happy and blessed watching and waiting looking above filled with his goodness lost in his love many of us are spending our days waiting and waiting and waiting we're waiting for a relationship we're waiting for a a new job, we're waiting for a child to be born, we're waiting for retirement, we're waiting for the kids to grow up, we're waiting and waiting and waiting. Can I ask you, church, are you waiting for Jesus to return? As passionate as you are, waiting for that deal to come through, 
This is where Peter wants his people as he writes out his final words to them. Wait on the Lord. Wait for the coming of the day of the Lord. He goes on, he says this, according in verse 12, according to his promise, we are what? Waiting what? For new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's going to be a new heaven, there's going to be a new earth. And in this new heaven and in this new earth, there's going to be righteousness. God is going to be on his throne. The righteous king is going to reign forever and ever. We will reign with him as his people. And the point of all this is that everything here is going to be burned up except the fruits of holiness. One person said this pithy statement. He said, only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. So we finish these 12 verses with the question we started out from the beginning. Are you ready for the return of Christ? Is your heart ready for Christ? And honestly, church, I don't want to make any assumptions that everybody in this room is ready for Christ. I don't want to assume that all of you who are sitting here prepared yourself to come to church this morning, maybe as it's the habit that you do. I don't want to assume that everybody is right with God this morning. And it's a weighty question. We heard a testimony last week of, a, of one of our own men who came up and said it was a Sunday night. He was 17, 18 years old. He sat at church and he went to church because his parents made him go to church. He sat there and the pastor said, hey, are you ready to die? And that's what struck him. And I don't want to cast fear on you. And to, but I do want to, as your shepherd and as your pastor, lovingly do all that I can to ensure that you are ready for Christ to return. And if you're not ready, I would love to talk to you about it. I'd love for you to know Jesus and all of his beauty and glory. I'd love for you to have purpose and meaning in this life beyond what's here. I'd, I'd love for you to lay your head down at night in peace with God. There's nothing as important than being right with God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, these, these kinds of messages are, are weighty and they're heavy. We make no apology for that. Sometimes the weighty and heavy messages are exactly what we need to hear. In your providence, Lord, on this day, on this Sunday morning, you would gather these people to come sit under the word of God to be confronted with the truth of the reality that you are going to return. You've pierced our conscience. You've awakened our minds. And we're reminded, Lord, that we can't just sit and be hearers of the word. We must be doers.
And so, Lord, as your Holy Spirit is pressing in on our hearts, there's things that we need to change about our, our lives, about our attitudes, about our pursuit of holiness, about even being right with God. Lord, I pray that that change would take place before we leave. As I believe it's the heart of every believer in here is that we want to live in obedience to you. We want to attract people to the gospel through our lives. Help us to do that. We need your strength. We need your grace each and every day to do that. And Lord, we look forward to that day when you return. When we get to meet our Savior face to face, what a glorious day that will be. To think of living in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I can't even imagine what that's like, but that sounds so wonderful. May that day come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.